This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to the Mailbag Edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. I'm Tim McMaster. We're coming to you a little bit early this week due to the hectic postseason schedule with no off days between games two and seven of these league championship series, if they go that long. Ken was able to get to the mailbag early Sunday morning, so we figured we'd get the show to you right away before Sunday's action gets going. Before we get to that, one note regarding the Athletic Podcast Network. You want to stick around to the end of this episode to hear the trailer for From Kuva to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team. It's a narrative podcast from The Athletic featuring USMNT head coach Greg Berhalter, star players Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams, and U.S. soccer legend Clint Dempsey. It tells the story of the men's national team not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup and leading up to this year's Cup, and it's coming to The Athletic Soccer Show feed November 1st. So check out the trailer and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. All right, without further ado, here's Ken. Hello, everyone. I am recording this early Sunday morning, and I do mean early. It is shortly after game four of the NLCS. It is obviously a situation where we have the Phillies leading three games to one in the National League. We have the Astros leading three games to none in the American League. The outcomes seem close to being determined, but they're not determined yet. So I'm not going to wax poetic on the playoffs and what has happened in these rounds just yet. I will be writing about them once they're concluded. But I have something that I want to discuss today, and it's something that I think a lot of people are curious about. It's something that we're doing for the first time at Fox, and a lot of you have paid notice to it. One way or the other, positively or negatively. And that, of course, is the in-game interview. Something that takes place actually during games in the dugouts. I've done it for two series now. And actually, we started this the final weekend of the regular season. Mets versus Braves at Truist Park. That was the first time we did it. And we've continued it through the playoffs. This has been something that only Fox has done so far. I imagine that in time, other networks will do it too. And some people have asked, well, whoa, whoa, why are you guys allowed in the dugout? Why are you bothering the players? Why is this even necessary? Well, let me give you some background. So for years now, and I can't give you an exact number of years, but for years, Fox has been seeking, and I know this because I work for Fox, I imagine other networks have sought this same thing too, better ways to bring the game to the viewers, to get the viewers more inside the game. Now, you can do this in a number of different ways. Through audio, with the microphones close to the field, through video, with the cameras on the bases, all the different angles, the number of cameras. There are a number of visual and audio techniques that can be done to, yes, bring the game closer to home, your home, where you're watching, or even on your devices. We have sought, Fox has, access to the players during games for some time. And it's been something, obviously, that was not necessarily embraced right away by Major League Baseball, by the teams, by the players. It's been kind of evolving over time. So we started to do it this year. And just so you know, I'm not 
barging into the dugout, tapping players on the shoulder while they're in deep concentration and interrupting them in that sense. Now, yes, I am walking into the dugout. I am tapping them on the shoulder. And this is all basically prearranged. The clubs know about it, and I've approved it. The players know about it, and most of them have approved it. The league certainly knows about it and has been supportive of it because the league wants this kind of access too. They want this vividness to the broadcasts. And in my view, it's working. It's something that is different, but it is bringing the players and the life of the game right into your homes and onto your devices. Now, I'll give you a couple of things that you should know. As I said, one, it's been approved by the party that need to approve it. Now, not every player has said yes. Some players are uncomfortable with it. And you can understand, we all have different feelings about different things that happen in our jobs. Some players just want to stay in their zone and feel that any intrusion on that is just not something that they're comfortable with. Obviously, that's cool. And people at Fox, everywhere, we understand that. MLB understands that. But the vast majority of players and the clubs have embraced it. And if you've seen our broadcast of the Phillies in the Division Series and the LCS, I don't know how many players I've interviewed from the Phillies now, but it's a good number. And a good number have just really embraced it, enjoyed it, and they don't see it as an intrusion. I'm amused by the tweets I get. You're disrupting the game. You're disrupting the players. They don't see it that way. Otherwise, they would not have agreed to do it. So they see it, I would imagine, and I have not asked them specifically this, as a way to promote themselves, promote the game, and make everything a little bit larger than life. And with the excitement in Citizens Bank in particular, the players are feeding off that and I can't tell because I'm not watching on television. I'm actually conducting the interviews, but it seems to me that that's coming through. Now, some fans have said, well, why do you not interview certain guys after certain home runs? Why only these guys, etc.? Why not the same number on both teams? Good question. Fair question. With two outs, we're not going to do it. Because what happens is, let's say I get a player and there's two outs. It goes to one and two. Or even if it's the first pitch and the player grounds out. Well, guess what? We're going to commercial break. We can't do it right away. So that's a no-no. It's two outs. You'll never see me generally start a story on television with two outs either for the same reason. Because it can end so quickly. Also, as I said, there are some players who don't want to do it. And there are certain circumstances where it just is impossible. For instance, a player hits a home run and then is talking with his teammates and is engaged in deep conversation and is not really aware of the request for the interview or the possibility of the interview. It's, it's just his mind is elsewhere and it's kind of hard to get to him. That happens. So it doesn't happen in every case. And the Phillies, when I see them, they come right over. But not every team has done that. I expect these interviews to continue in the World Series. I expect almost to the same extent. Yes, the games are important, but... This is not a sport where everyone is involved in the action at every moment. So there is space for this kind of thing. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. It is a cooperative effort between Fox, Major League Baseball, the clubs, and the players. No one's being forced to do anything. 
everyone's doing it for, in my view, the right reasons. So I've tried to answer the questions. I think I have. You guys can keep tweeting at me as you will. Ken, leave the players alone. Whatever you guys want to say. Say it all. I can mute you and I will. <laughs> I can block you on occasion and I will. But while you're entitled to your opinion, you should know the facts. And the facts are this is not being done spontaneously. It's not being done without a lot of planning, a lot of discussion. It's being done as, again, this cooperative effort. And it's being done, in my view, for the right reasons. To bring the fans closer to it without disrupting the broadcast, without missing a pitch. We're not missing any pitches, okay? So just kind of clam it with that. And one other thing, by the way, as you're asking, why am I bothering these players? Did anybody rise to my defense the other night when the fanatic plopped himself down while I was doing a live hit seconds before the game started? These we do every game. They're actually quite difficult to do. They're live. They're timed. You can't mess up. You can't stumble. You got to go. Well, the fanatic comes right next to me, plops himself down, as I said, and I had to do it not knowing what he was going to do next. If he's going to put his arm around me, stick his fabled tongue out at me. Nobody asked my permission. And I didn't see any of you guys on Twitter rise to my defense. In truth, it was funny. I get it was funny. It was also terrifying for me because I was terrified of stumbling and messing up and just blowing the whole thing because the fanatic was, I don't know, just sitting there hanging out and doing his thing. I love the fanatic. In my view, he's the best mascot in sports. I just wish he wouldn't do that stuff when I'm doing live hits. Anyway, all in good fun. All right, let's get to the mailbag. Let's get to the questions. We have some good ones this week, and I'm anxious to answer them. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. All right. Great insight from Ken as far as how those dugout interviews came together and kind of the backstory behind them. And I find them fascinating. Guy hits a home run. You get to hear from him right away. It's not something that you get in any other of the major four professional sports that you get to hear from the players in the middle of the game. It's pretty cool stuff uh, on Fox right now. All right. On to the mailbag. You know how to reach us if you want to down the road. The phone number is 646-543-7072. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And we start with a question from Dan who says, as a baseball fan, I was really looking forward to all the Otani and Trout trade rumors this offseason and the bidding wars that would have eventually ensued until I saw that the Angels and Otani had agreed on a one-year deal to avoid arbitration. It seems that everyone except the Angels front office recognizes that a rebuild is urgent and that Trout and Otani are their only valuable trade chips in which they can load up the farm and help them avoid limping to the finish line for the next five to seven years. My question is this, with all the uncertainty around the ownership and with the abysmally disappointing season they just had, what's their plan going forward? Are they convinced that they can make magic happen next season? Wouldn't it be better for them to trade them in the offseason as opposed to the trade deadline next season? I have so many questions regarding this situation. I need your wisdom to help it make sense. Dan, I think you speak for a lot of Angels fans. I think your frustration echoes a lot of Angels fans. And I don't have necessarily a great answer for you. You mentioned the uncertainty with the ownership. And that, of course, revolves around the sale. 
that to me is what is driving everything right now and is leading the angels, I expect, to be somewhat inert this offseason, not doing the things that you suggest, trading Trout, trading Otani. I don't know that they're in a position to do that. Now, it's always possible that Artie Moreno has identified a new owner and the new owner says to him, hey, start tearing it down. We want to start over. We want to get the best possible prospects for Trout and Otani. That's how we want to go about it. I have a hard time believing a new owner would do that, just dump all of his assets. Otani is a unique figure in the game. He is a unique asset. He is someone I would expect any new owner would want to sign. Now, this offseason might not be the right time to trade him anyway. The right time to trade him was at the deadline when there was a year and a half of control left, two pennant races. Wasn't what Juan Soto had left in control, but it was significant. Now it's one year, $30 million. He is signed. You'd avoid an arbitration case. That's good. But generally speaking, players with one year of control don't command the same kind of return that players with multiple years, multiple pennant races do. So that's one thing going against an Otani trade. As for Trout, He's got many more years of control at big money, and he's also had hard time staying on the field in recent seasons. That diminishes his value. So, to sum it all up, my expectation is that they have to wait for the new owner and then wait for the new owner to give the team a direction. Now, if I'm a fan, that's not something I want to hear because it means another year in this purgatory, which is where they've been for quite some time now, but I just don't expect anything major to happen until they have some clarity regarding a sale. The next question brings us some insight into what the Braves have done with their young players and how that approach is kind of impacting other fan bases. It comes from Adam. He says, watching all these young guys signing deals around baseball and being a Jays fan and hearing no real talk about extensions for their young core like Bo, Vlad, and Manoa makes me wonder if it's the front office delaying this or the players themselves maybe. Do you think it may be harder to sign guys who are sons of former players? Do guys that grow up with family money also make it harder to get more team-friendly deals, or is that irrelevant? Adam, this is a good question, and it's actually something I had not thought of before, but you raise a great point. Guys like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette, who grew up with Major League Fathers, you would assume they come from a more well-off background than a number of other players. Players who come from impoverished backgrounds, players who even come from lower-middle-class backgrounds. So they're in a better position. They don't have to take that extension to assure financial security for their family to grab that first fortune. At the same time, there's a great example of a player who is also the son of a major leaguer who did sign one of these extensions. His name is Fernando Tatis Jr. And he signed one of those extensions because he was given a tremendous deal, $340 million. Now, I'm not saying Bo Bichette or Vlad should get that, but... If you offer a player like that fair market value in their estimation or a reasonable deal, well, they're going to consider it strongly. Players have all kinds of different views about these extensions. Some prefer to go year to year, Aaron Judge, for instance, and wait for the jackpot of free agency. Some, and I can name any number of players, prefer the extensions, prefer at least that first contract 
with a second chance, maybe in their low 30s, which is a dicey time for some players. And that way, they have it off their heads. They have the fortune for their family. They're in good shape. It depends on the circumstances of the player, the player's desires, all kinds of variables. But in the cases of those two guys, would they sign extensions, Vlad Jr. and Bichette, if they were given fair deals? I believe they would. Why not? Manoa, different case entirely, of course, because he is not the son of a major leaguer. And he may be looking, as a pitcher especially, to get some security because pitchers are at greater risk for shoulder elbow injuries than position players are. And it would seem to me that Manoa, for those reasons, and because he didn't have a major league father, he might be more motivated. That would make sense to me. We've gotten so many questions from Mets fans, both when they were in the pennant race and now that they're out of it. This one from Sam, he says, as a Mets fan, I am more focused on roster construction than gameplay right now, as you might imagine. I am not part of the segment of the fan base that has been bemoaning our trade deadline and can rationalize why those moves were made. But between our deadline, the insane performances we got from Cespedes and Baez after acquiring them, and watching the Padres' acquisitions and how they played down the stretch, I got to wondering, and my question is this, how many wins on average do teams pick up as deadline buyers? Essentially, does the deadline matter nearly as much as we make it out to? Sometimes you might get a Cespedes or a CC Sabathia performance, but it feels like for each of these type of players, there are just as many names that flop. Think Berkman to the Yankees, Darvish to the Dodgers, Tulowitzki to the Blue Jays, just to name a few. Sam, it's funny. We quantify everything these days, right? But you're right. I have not seen anyone quantify or seem to put a formula onto what a deadline deal means for a team. And the reason I believe that is the case is because it's impossible to do. Every case is different. Every trade is different. Every set of circumstances is different. You can't compare, for instance, the Juan Soto trade to the deals that the Mets made at the deadline. One was a blockbuster. The others were more piecemeal. They were never designed to have the same kind of effect. You can rate the quality of trades over time, especially when they involve prospects, and you can see who got the better of it. You can just calculate war for each individual trade and look at it that way if that's the way you want to do it. That makes sense. But it's really difficult to assess a deadline in the way you're suggesting in some kind of uniform analysis. And I'll give you the Phillies as an example. This year, they didn't make any blockbuster moves at the deadline, but they made a series of moves that helped them. The two that I really liked were the acquisitions of Brandon Marsh for Mickey Moniak and Edmundo Sosa for Jojo Romero. Both those deals improved their defense, gave them better defensive players, and in their view, brought them two young players with offensive upside as well. We'll see how Marsh and Sosa turn out, but certainly they've made a contribution so far. Dave Dombrowski also fortified the pitching staff with Syndergaard and David Robertson, moves that were not quite as impactful, but they helped, and they continue to help in the postseason. So how do you rate that compared to a Soto trade? I don't know that you can, but it is an interesting question. I'll give you that. 
Eric is up next. He says, I was wondering about the Manager of the Year Award. Are interim managers eligible to win it? I'm obviously biased as a Phillies fan, but I think Rob Thompson deserves serious consideration for the award. What better way to see the effect of a manager than to see two people manage the same team in the same season and get such different results? If he is eligible for the award, do you think Rob Thompson will be getting Manager of the Year votes this year? All right, Eric. Well, I've been watching the Phillies in the division series and league championship series in person. I've gotten a full glimpse of what Rob Thompson has brought to this team in person, as opposed to reporting from afar. And yes, I know what I wrote in May about Joe Girardi and how things wouldn't change and how they did change. And I think you might've seen my apology. I did them in virtually every medium in print on national television And the national television segment was put out on video as well, which I tweeted. I was wrong. I'm happy to admit I'm wrong. They've been a fun story, the Phillies. And let me be wrong like this every year. It's okay. It's baseball, by the way. And basically, even the smartest guys, the GMs, the managers, they're wrong a lot too. And in this case, hey, it worked out great. But that's not your question. Your question is, should Rob Thompson deserve consideration for manager of the year? Yes, of course he should. In my view, though, a guy who takes over on June 3rd is not the same as a guy who takes over a team or is the manager of a team from the start of spring training. It's almost the sample size question that we sometimes see in the awards. Volume does matter to me with the Cy Young Award in particular, but also even an MVP consideration. You want a guy who plays just about every day. Not quite the same as a manager because you're talking about a different type of impact, but the impact that, say, a Buck Showalter made over a full season is greater than the impact, in my opinion, that Rob Thompson made. Now, Rob Thompson turned that team around. There's no question about it. It is out there for everyone to see, and it's been chronicled fairly well by a number of different reporters. And Buck Showalter also had a major impact on his team. He not only changed... The expectations, he really established a new culture. Now, you could say Thompson did the same, but again, it's not quite analogous because he didn't do it from the start of a season. I'm not knocking Rob Thompson. I'm just stating the difference. Ali Marmel, Dave Roberts, they're also deserving of consideration in the National League. Brian Snicker as well, probably missing a few. But while Rob Thompson certainly would have a case for the award, and deserves to be in the conversation. The way I see it, it's that full season that really defines a manager of the year. Oh, and one other thing on that, manager of the year, like all of the Baseball Writers Association of America awards, are based only on the regular season. So the postseason doesn't count. The ballots are collected when the regular season ends. So if you're thinking, well, Rob Thompson's really building his case here, he isn't because the ballots are already in and will be counted shortly, and the awards will be announced, the winners, in November. All right, a couple of voicemails this week as well. Here's the first one. Hi, Joey from Omaha here. I wanted to respond or ask a question about the concept of luck and randomness in the playoffs. Your colleagues on the Roundtable show were talking about, you know, Twitter trolls or people on the Internet that are largely frustrated that baseball is too random in the playoffs. I guess my question is, what's the point of playoffs if there's not a bit of randomness? If you want the best team to win, 
I guess I don't understand why it's unique to baseball. The President's Trophy in hockey has a curse that they never win the Stanley Cup. Overall, number one team in the NBA rarely win. The the you know, ten and six Giants beat the pa- the undefeated Patriots in the Super Bowl. The best team doesn't always win. If you want to measure the best team always winning, do it like European soccer. Have everyone play everyone the same number of times. Round robin, best record wins. I don't think anybody wants that because the playoffs are an American pastime. So I, I guess I don't understand this criticism, and I'm curious your thoughts. Joey, I'm with you on this. And if you want the playoff results to reflect the regular season results and them to be one and the same, then why even have a playoff? Now, you can question the way Major League Baseball is going about this, whether expanded playoffs are the way to go, whether you're comfortable with a number six seed like the Phillies going on the run that they are. There are six seeds in each league now. The Phillies were the bottom seed in the National League, the last team to get in. And if Milwaukee hadn't collapsed, who knows? Maybe the Phillies wouldn't have gotten in. That said, they got hot at the right time. And that's what you have to do in the playoffs. And nothing can be taken away from what they've accomplished to this point and what they might accomplish beyond. So I'm not sure what people want exactly. In my view, and I've written this, the teams that won 100 games, the Dodgers and Braves in particular, they had every advantage. They had the advantage of a buy. Now, I know it resulted in a five-day layoff, and maybe that had some effect, but my gosh, they wanted to rest their players. The Mets in a little bit different situation, but they had an advantage too. Every game on their wildcard series was at home. That's something that should be significant. Didn't seem to matter, or at least didn't matter enough because they lost two of three to the Padres. So I'm with you. There is no point to the playoffs if there is not a bit of randomness. And as I've written, someone's going to have to figure out, maybe it can't be figured out. Maybe the baseball gods are not going to allow this to happen. But the Dodgers in particular, maybe they need to try a better plan for the playoffs, right? They're a great team every year, and yet they stumble, and there's different reasons every year, but maybe they should approach their pitching differently. We discussed this last week. So I'm with you. I don't want to see the exact outcomes in the playoffs that we see in the regular season. I guess you could start a tournament from the start of the regular season and go about it that way. But I don't know. Baseball is not going to do that, in my opinion. And our final question is one more voicemail. Hi, Tim and Ken. This is Fletcher. Uh, Called earlier in the season asking if Major League Baseball should take a page out of our friends down under's playbook and have another idea from our pals in Australia. I know all the reasons why this wouldn't be an idea many people like, but here it goes anyway. In the wake of the teams from the wild card round doing so well against the teams that had extra rest, do you think we could ever see a scenario where Major League Baseball and Players Association agree to what we have now, except instead of having buys for the top two teams, have essentially a qualifying round between the top two teams. So we'll take the National League this year, for example. The Braves and the Dodgers, instead of getting a weekend plus off, would play a game or a series to determine who gets the number one seed and faces the corresponding team after the wild card round. Uh, We'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm not saying it's something that has to happen immediately. Um, this could be a fluke year. We could see the rest of the teams come back with a vengeance next year. But if there is a pattern to having 
or an advantage to having played the wild card as opposed to have a few days off to rest before the playoffs start. I think that's something that MLB could uh, look into. All right, Fletcher, I see what you're trying to address here, and I appreciate your creativity. What you're trying to do is take away the negative aspect of the five-day layoff and let the top seeds play as the wild cards get to play and the teams that are in that wild card round continue playing without a layoff. To me, that would kind of defeat the purpose of winning the bye, which is to get the layoff. And yeah, five days, it's problematic. Not that much longer than layoffs have been in the past. And sometimes you'll see that kind of layoff in the middle of the playoffs if a team sweeps. That's just baseball. And I don't believe that if you force those teams to play additional games and expend resources, particularly pitching resources, that that is a proper reward. And what the league has tried to do with the postseason format is give those teams with the buy that extra advantage. They get the layoff, they get to avoid the first round, the best of three, and they get to set up their pitching how they like it. It should be an advantage. Didn't turn out to be this year for a couple of teams. The Astros certainly haven't had a problem. But that's why we've had all of this conversation. So while I appreciate what you're saying, I just don't believe that's a proper solution. If anything, baseball has done a good amount to reward those teams and should be rewarding those teams. And at that point, it's up to those teams, as I just said, to figure out how to best compete. And it's not an easy thing. The playoffs are random. As Billy Bean once said, his stuff doesn't work in the playoffs because so much randomness takes place. Well, as I said, and I'll say this in conclusion, that's kind of the beauty of it. Excellent stuff. All right. If you want to get involved down the road, the phone number is 646-543-7072. Leave us a voicemail. Or you can also email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. This show came out a day early, but we're mostly back to normal scheduling this week, although we do have a live stream coming up. But on Tuesday, it'll be Starkville, Jason and Doug, the guest on that TBD based on how these series play out. Then you'll have the roundtable coming up with Andy, who's been on the road, Mark and Grant. Uh, But then Wednesday afternoon or Thursday afternoon, if the ALCS wraps up in less than seven games, it'll be Wednesday. If they go seven, we'll wait till Thursday. We'll have a live World Series preview. That's going to be Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris possibly Brit coming back to that show as well. And they'll be joined by the beat writers for the teams that are playing in the World Series. So check that out. It'll be streaming live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. It'll be 3 p.m. Eastern time, either Wednesday or Thursday. We'll get you more updates on that time as these series play out. If the Astros wrap things up and sweep it, it'll definitely be coming to you on Wednesday. If you want to join The Athletic, $1 a month for six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. want to thank Ken for finding some time in his crazy schedule to answer these questions. Incredible job recording this thing after midnight, uh, Saturday, well, Sunday morning. Um, thanks to everybody out there for listening as well. And as promised, here's that trailer for the upcoming narrative series on the U.S. men's national soccer team. The U.S. hit rock bottom in Cuba in 2017. Can't even talk about it. Still, it's tough to, to speak about. We failed. Simple. It was a, it was a very dark time in, in U.S. soccer's history, you know, not making the World Cup. That disaster, in some ways, was a blessing in disguise. With so many younger players coming in, everybody was extremely hungry. Competition started. The U.S. men's national team went through a dramatic evolution. 
was at a point where I think, okay, I'm gonna lose these guys here. They're gonna stop believing in what we're doing. They're still forming. They're not fully realized players yet. I remember after that El Salvador game, just thinking to myself, man, like this is gonna be a grind. They're talented. There's a lot of hype around them, but are they really ready to take that next step? Everyone has something to prove. We got a lot of players who probably have that mentality. And now this team will head to the World Cup in Qatar with massive expectations around it. If we can get our group to play without fear, you know, we'll be, we'll be dangerous. We have one mission is to go to the World Cup and to win. I'm Paul Tenorio. And I'm Sam Stayschool. We are excited to bring you a special podcast series on the Athletic Soccer Show feed. From Kuva to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team. The series details how the team was rebuilt, from the catastrophe of not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup to now sending a talented, young roster to Qatar. You'll hear from the biggest names in U.S. soccer, from head coach Greg Berhalter to former greats like Demarcus Beasley and Clint Dempsey and current players like Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney, and Gio Reyna. The entire series will be out on November 1st on the Athletic Soccer Show podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts.